following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Two weeks ago, we began, or I began, a series of talks introducing, again, the practice for ourselves, sort of taking the time in September to reflect what is this practice that we're doing. I was on retreat myself last week, so hopefully some of you were here and heard Kyoko Katayama speak. Grateful for Kyoko teaching while I was away. So we'll come back to just one particular formulation of our practice. I mentioned this two weeks ago, as I said, uh, this acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N. It's just a remember, a way of remembering our practice and deepening, you know, it's like a way to reflect on what we're doing. And generally the way that practice works is we just need a way to get started and then the process itself opens up. You know, we just need a, a doorway in. Just a little bit of a sense of what the Buddha means by a moment of mindfulness, a moment of recognizing this reflective quality of the mind that remembers that, oh, this is how it is, or this moment is something being known. And that's actually a radical, profound thing. This is what I talked about two weeks ago. What a I mean, sometimes we call this a paradigm shift, but it's it's quite profound. It's not like, in a way, it rocks our world. Because normally we're living, we don't even realize it, but we're living in the sense of, this is me, I'm having a life here. But whatever experience we're having, it's actually just something now being known. No matter how complex your experience is, or how subtle or how intense. It's just something being known. So a moment of mindfulness, a moment of being present, what that means is the mind or the heart right now is recognizing this is just something being known. And you see, the, just get a sense of the two worlds, like you can have the sense of I'm at common ground and I'm a 54-year-old guy doing my best to give a talk. And if you're having that thought now, <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> it's okay for me to have that thought. So you're having some thought, and then if we're not, if we're not reflective, if we're not being mindful, then that's all there is to our existence. Is we, that content is, in a sense, reality for us. The story we have about what's happening now is reality. But when we're reflective, then we know that the story is just a story being known, whatever that is. And it's not judgmental. We're not like dismissing the story because it's just something being known or it's just a story being known. It's not dismissive at all. It's just an honest truth. You know, it's just a reflection. Well, this is a story, this whatever the moment is appearing to be, it's just something being known now. And then if we can sustain that reflective attitude by accepting it and remaining interested, then something very powerful begins to 
unfold. So the basic dynamic, initial dynamic in practice is a moment of reflection or recognition that this is something being known. This moment of the mind-body experience is being known. And then accepting it, trusting it, not needing it to be different, allowing it to be what it is, and being interested. If we're just accepting it, we tend towards dullness and tranquility and then eventually falling asleep. So we need both the acceptance, the trusting of it, but also a respect for this moment, whatever it is, the great mystery of now, this is relevant. This is my life. It's unknown. It's worthy. You know, it makes sense to want to wake up to it, to be interested in it. So we're, we're playing with these three qualities, and when we get it just right, we have what's called the continuity of mindfulness leading into samadhi, into uh, unification of mind. Because when the mind is recognizing this is how it is and accepting it and interested in it, then there's a purity, an unshakable purity or unification of mind that feels really good because it's not agitating. Even if what the mind is recognizing, even if it's intense or unpleasant, as long as the mind is recognizing it as something being known and able to keep accepting it and stay interested in it, there's a real steadiness, a real power in the mind and heart. So you can, you, you can actually feel that unification, that steadiness, the unshakableness of the mind. Feel like grounded. You know, we have these phrases we use. And of course, a normal sense of being grounded is nice, but when that's developed to the nth degree, it, it really stands out. And then the N in RAIN is non-attachment, as I mentioned in the, gui the guided instructions tonight. And when we're recognizing this is how it is, accepting, being interested, then what begins to come through, what begins to be recognized or understood, is that whatever is being seen and accepted and whatever the mind is interested in, that it's impersonal, that it's a force of nature. So in a way, it completes the work that that first movement where we recognize that reflective moment of the mind where the mind realizes this is just something being known. This is being known. Breathing in is being known. Breathing out is being known. Hearing is being known. Thinking is being known. Being bored is being known. Judging is being known. And then we're sustaining that awareness. So whatever is arising in experience, the mind is recognizing this is just something being known. It's accepting, being interested. And with some continuity, some steadiness of that reflective mindful awareness, then this new view or yeah, new view or transforming view begins to dawn on the mind of how impersonal it all is. Or how everything, whether you're looking at sensation in the body or sound or thought or emotion or sight, that everything has a very natural and impersonal quality to it. It's like everything's happening, 
including everything we normally think of as being very personal, like my thoughts and my emotions. But everything is seen the same, and not the same in the sense that it's flat and doesn't matter. That's called indifference. That's a form of aversion. So it's not that aversion or that indifference. But everything's even in the sense of being aware of thought, being aware of sight, being aware of sensation. It's not really different because it's all the movement of nature. It doesn't really matter whether you're, the mind in that moment is observing its own inner dialogue or observing the experience of hearing or seeing or breathing in, breathing out. Sometimes meditators would say things like, you know, it just seems so perfect. Everything seems so perfect. Just the way it's supposed to be. And this is a, you know, an, an attempt to articulate that insight what we generally call non-attachment. Because when the mind isn't attached, it's another way of saying the mind isn't evaluating experience in terms of being good or being bad or being mine or being yours. It just is. And in a sense, and I know this is sort of funny to say it this way, but it captures some aspect of the insight. In a sense, it's perfect. It's perfectly okay the way that it is. It in a sense, the mind is having the insight that it can't be other than this right now. So in a sense, it's perfect that it's this way. It couldn't be other than this. All of us have had this experience to some degree, where you're going through your life, maybe in a med formal meditation, maybe just in daily life, but you're doing something, and the mind then, in a sense, becomes overwhelmed with the sense, the peace, that everything's the way that it's supposed to be. It doesn't mean it's the way you want it to be, that everything fits your preference. You know, I've got just what I want to eat. People are treating me just the way I want them to treat me. The weather is just how I like it. I'm wearing my favorite shirt, my favorite pants. It's not that kind of perfection. It's really a perfection arising out of understanding, you know, understanding that this moment and how it's arising, that it's perfectly lawful that it hasn't missed the beat. It couldn't be other than what it is. It's exactly how it's supposed to be, given everything, given all the causes and conditions. And there's a certain safety in that. Not safety for an individual, but safety in the sense that everything is the way it's supposed to be. I'm the way I'm supposed to be in that conventional sense, and everything else is the way that it's supposed to be. So this is another way of talking about non-attachment. We don't normally think about non-attachment in that way, because when we think about non-attachment, the N and the acronym RAIN, you know, we mostly think, oh, I shouldn't be attached. It's a very self-centered thing, isn't it? Like, I heard once or many times, I shouldn't be attached. So it's like an imitation. I'm going to imitate, imitate or pretend that nothing matters to me. You know, and we even do it, you know, even when we were teenagers, it was sort of a, an identity we played with, like I'll pretend like nothing matters because uh, that way I won't get hurt if somebody, you know, likes me and then later doesn't like me. So I'll just pretend it doesn't matter. I don't care what you think. You know, I don't care if I get a good grade. I don't mind if I get a D. 
So we, we sort of use that sometimes as an identity. I'm the one who doesn't care. But that's not equanimity. That's not non-attachment. Again, that's a kind of aversion or delusion. So in non-attachment, the heart, mind, might really care about something, but that, like, really wanting something to be a certain way, that's immediately recognized as just something being known. Oh, that's just wanting. Oh, it's just wanting being known. And we can accept that, we can be interested in it, and we can see it with non-attachment, understand it with non-attachment. Oh, that's just that movement of nature we call wanting in the mind, or anger in the mind, or defensiveness in the mind, or that's just that sound being heard. So whether we're looking at emotional states or mind states or looking at more natural phenomena, we can see it in this impersonal, natural way. Have you ever had the experience being with somebody, especially in a more intense conversation with someone, but it's almost like uh, there you are kind of wrapped up in the argument or the conversation, but then something opens up. It's almost as if, you know, people, you probably read about people describing near-death experiences where they just have the sense of floating up above the body, looking down on the body. Well, you can have that just in your experience. I mean, not literally that way, but almost as if there you are in this intense dialogue or argument, but there's just a sense as if there's an awareness knowing that this intense, the intensity of the argument is like this now. And there's a real cool, even, non-attachment, non-identification with the drama. But yet the personality is right in the middle of the drama. And you'll see, you'll observe, you kind of taking your stance, fixing your mind, you know, feeling the tightness of that. And everything else that's moving, what you see in him or her, feeling the air against your skin. And one of the characteristics of that kind of insight is you'll notice not only the dramatic qualities of what's happening, like the fixation of your mind and your opinion being right, but you'll notice seemingly trivial details at the same moment, and they'll be, in a sense, equally important, where like the touch of the air against your skin. When we're just caught in the argument, we're completely oblivious to all of that. You know, we're just totally fixated on my opinion being right, what I can do to sort of, you know, protect my sense of being right and my conviction in you being wrong. But it's like, in a way, all phenomena are equal. Nothing is highlighted over another. That's one of the qualities of non-attachment or this insight. Sometimes we say insight into emptiness, but that's another way of talking about it that can be really easily misunderstood because we think emptiness and we think annihilation, like when nothing's happening. But here, in a Buddhist sense, emptiness means the absence of the mind struggling with greed, caught in greed, identified with greed, caught or identified with anger, caught and identified with delusion, being disconnected or misperceiving in some way. So the emptiness of that allows for non-attachment, allows for this liberation. It's really this fourth thing in the practice is to some degree the experience of liberation. The mind, when it's not attached, 
it's liberated from attachment. It's liberated from the constriction, the gripping, the grasping of fixation, obsession. I'm right, you're wrong, I like this, I don't like that. These are all constricted states of mind. Now, we might be interested in non-attachment. You hear a little talk like this and you think, God, I want to, I don't want to be attached, I want to be not attached. It would be so much easier <clears throat> to get by if I just was, wasn't attached to being right or attached to this or to, to that. But you can't, that's not what leads to non-attachment, wanting to be non-attached. What leads to non-attachment is these first three parts of the acronym. Training the mind to have this reflective approach, basically, where as often as we can, preferably continuously, the mind is recognizing, oh, this is being known. Like how many times since the talk has begun has your mind had that very clear recognition, oh, this is just an experience being known. You know, this experience of sitting is just something being known. The experience of hearing Mark is just something being known. The experience of the ideas being connecting, you know, like actually perceiving the ideas so that you're recognizing the words I'm speaking, not just hearing the sound vibration of my voice, but you're actually, the, the knowledge or the meaning of the words is landing and, of course, immediately connecting with whatever... Uh, background knowledge you already have, right? So it's having that sort of intellectual imprint or connection, sort of highlighting or, you know, lighting up all of the other information that relates to this talk that you already have somehow embedded in your mind. That's just something being known. So it doesn't happen very often, does it? Where we have that reflective moment. Mostly... We're not reflective. So, so much of the training is just how can we have more of those moments of mindfulness, those reflective moments where the mind is recognizing this is being known. This experience of getting what Mark is saying is being known. Or this experience of not getting what he's talking about is being known. Or this experience of being bored is being known. Or excited is being known. Or hot or being cold is being known. And actually, you initially it feels clumsy or awkward. It feels like, how can I do my job? How can I drive my car and still be reflective? Still know this is just something being known. It feels like we have to get lost in the doing in order to do it, to do our life, to brush our teeth, to drive our car, to have a conversation. But actually, being reflective being aware that this is being known supports doing, supports appropriate action, more nimbleness of action. It doesn't actually get the, in the way, even though it feels a little awkward as we're learning to be mindful, it's learning to recognize, oh, this is just something being known. Sitting is being known. Hearing is being known. If you like what's happening now, liking is being known. If you don't like what's happening now, not liking is being known. And you feel that the coolness of equanimity that arises when you are recognizing in this mindful way, this is just something being known. You see, it begins to 
tease out, take out the self, all the self-drama in the moment. And then it's just a question of sustaining it, kind of having more continuity of that reflective attitude. So that's where the acceptance and the interest comes in. These two qualities of learning how to allow the experience to be what it is, to trust it and accept it, and to maintain a real vivid presence. Not feeling like, well, I already, I already looked, I already saw that this is how it is, now I don't have to be attentive. So the interest is keeping the mind right there, the knowing mind right there, because whatever was known a moment ago, that was a moment ago. This moment is not the same as that moment. Life, whatever this is, is so amazingly dynamic, changing, in ways that, from a conventional point of view, we can't even conceive of. We can't be captured conceptually how ephemeral our experience is. And when you start having insight into the ephemeral nature, because life is a process, that we can get intellectually, right? Like we can't get from A to B in a sort of what? It's A, and then there's B. Well, how do you get from this is what's happening to this is what's happening? It means that this is happening has to be very ephemeral in order to already be coming, now this is happening. So do you get that intellectually? That when things like life, reality, is a process, it's not much of anything because it's constantly becoming the next thing, and then the next thing, and the next thing. And it never stops to become one thing because it's always in the business of becoming the next thing. You see? And so when the mind, the heart, really begins to open to the nature, the reality, the way it is, it becomes... It's actually relatively easy to be interesting, to be interested, because it's so alive with change, so dynamic. But initially, it's a lot of work for us meditators, us people who are interested in mindfulness practice. It's a lot of work to convince the mind that this moment is worthy of that kind of interest, that full presence. Presence of this being known. It just doesn't, it just seems so much more interesting to get lost in our thoughts. Like, what does this mean philosophically? Like, that would be an interesting thought to get lost in. We could have endless debates. We could spend several lifetimes being Buddhist scholars thinking about these ideas, but not actually being interested in the way that it is now and maintaining that interest. It's like, you know, one of the reasons we like things like skiing, biking, playing ping pong, having, uh, you know, debating something with your lover or your friend, is it's unpredictable. You know, we don't know how the person's going to hit the ball back. We don't know, you know, until we're there, we don't know the right sort of combination of balance on the left and right leg and all these things. So it, the activity really brings us into the moment, and we like that, because to really show up as we're skiing down the hill, or playing ping pong, or having a conversation we haven't had before with somebody, um, it draws us out of our obsessed, fixed states of mind, the constricted states of mind, and into the dynamic nature of life. 
And that's really what the practice is about. That's why it's so enlivening. It's not only enlivening, it's also scary. So that's why we emphasize, you know, that uh, acceptance and uh, use neutral objects initially because just the, the quality of acceptance and tranquility really allows the heart to relax as it begins to open to the mystery, the ephemeral nature. Because it's really a different, we're, we're opening to a different world. We live so much in our projection of reality, our ideas about who I am, who you are, what this is, that it, it literally is our reality. And then when we drop or move beyond the sort of fixation, the attachment to our concepts, it's scary because we're opening to a, a world we don't recognize. We call it, in Buddhism, we call it Dhamma or Dharma. It's the way that it is. But that doesn't mean it's the way we know. You know, generally, from a Buddhist point of view, the way that it is is what we don't know. And ignorance is what we do know. So our understanding is what the Buddha would call ignorant. We are misperceiving the way that it is. And we're drawing all kinds of conclusions based on our misperceptions. And then our choices we make in life, of course, are coming out of those misperceptions. And it's frustrating because our life doesn't work very well. You know, we we put all of our effort into getting enough money for retirement. And then we discover when we're retired that we're old and don't feel like doing anything. Or whatever. Or we get sick. Or we end up, the stock market crashes and we don't have money anyway. And we feel betrayed by life. But it wasn't life that betrayed us. What betrayed us was our ignorance that somehow that there's some golden parachute for us. And if we're just competent enough, we'll get to the promised land. That idea that happiness is about manipulating conditions until we get utopia, and then we're set. Because we could, you know, if we had the time to interview all the people who we think are in utopia, they would tell us, that they're still looking for utopia. Or we kind of get a sense beneath the veneer, even though they think they're in utopia, we will get the sense that they're not really any happier than anybody else. You know, And part of their strategy of being happy is thinking that they're in utopia, that they're in the right place. So we've made, you know, we meet people like this if we look around and we get, the, get a sense of the limitations. So... The whole practice of RAIN, of recognizing this is being known, accepting, being interested, experiencing slowly, gradually, as the practice develops, more of this sense of emptiness, of non-attachment, of everything being nature, the movement of nature, and feeling the liberation of that. And then we see, oh, this is the way to happiness. It's not about manipulating, controlling conditions, controlling our partners, controlling our bodies, controlling the world, it's about finding a peace, a wise peace with conditions as they are. And any moment of our experience will do. We don't need to wait until our conditions are such and such in order to practice acceptance and being interested in seeing them as nature. We can practice with any moment. And so formal sitting practice is just Practicing with moments where there are just initially less disturbances. 
It's just we're making it easier by finding a quiet place to sit, particular time of day, particular place, where we will experience fewer disturbing experiences. We'll still, of course, have disturbing experiences because we still have our memories. No matter how pleasant your meditation hall is, you know, you still have your mind that can regurgitate stuff. But we, you know, we won't maybe have a cat bothering us or a child bothering us or a cell phone bothering us. We'll be sitting in a way that is good for our body where we feel relatively stable and comfortable. We'll pick an amount of time that's suitable for us that we can sit relatively still for that period of time. Over time, as you practice more, you can sit still for longer periods. So then you don't even need to worry about the body because for the most part, the body's okay sitting still for that 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And so you have that relatively simple experience of just sitting in a quiet room, quiet space outside, with no real duties except these four. Recognize, well, this is how it is now. This is being known. Accepting it, being interested in it, and noticing the liberating quality of non-attachment when and when it arises. And there's basically two ways to do that, as I mentioned in the sit tonight. You can ask or direct your mind to a particular anchor, what we call an anchor, like some neutral experience in the body, like just the general sense of sitting, sensations of sitting. That's one example of an anchor. Or you might direct your attention to the sensations of the breath by simply feeling the actual air touching as it goes in and out of the nostrils. Or some people prefer to feel the rising and falling of the abdominal wall. So that's just a neutral experience that you can be directing your attention to. You could direct your attention to hearing. So those are just three examples. Choose one if you're going to work this way. Body sensations of sitting, more specifically the body sensations of the air touching, going in and out, or if you can't breathe through your nose, just the air touching, going out in and out of the mouth, or feeling the belly moving with the breath, or the third being hearing. So that's what we could call directing the attention meditation practices, where you're Asking your attention to notice something. Still going to wander, of course. Get distracted. But now you know when you notice that the mind has wandered, you just have a moment of recognizing this is being known, accepting it, being interested in the distraction for a moment or two, seeing it as an impersonal movement. You didn't choose to get distracted. It just arose conditionally, lawfully. And then in a skillful way, coming back, to your directed practice, to your anchor, over and over again. And not being disappointed if the mind wanders 10,000 times in a half an hour, or one time in a half an hour for 30 minutes, <laughs> or whatever. You know, one time for just a few seconds, and the rest you were just with your anchor. It doesn't matter, because it's good practice when you're steady with your anchor, with the breath, for example, and it's good practice catching that the mind has gotten distracted, and learning the great skill of returning, coming back to the anchor, coming back to that, recognizing this is being known, accepting the breath, being interested in the breath, not attached, not identified with the breath, recognizing acceptance, interest. So that's how you work in a directed way. 
It's really the same when you're doing what we call open attention practice. So one, this is the second, um, I guess you'd say, way of practicing. So using a particular anchor or just open attention where whatever is predominant in the moment could be a physical experience like hearing, seeing, tactile experience, pain in the knee, for example, or could be a mental experience like a mind state, an attitude, particular thought, particular emotion being known, right? But whatever is arising that's predominant in that moment, you simply recognize, oh, this is being known. This is how it is. And accept it, be interested in it, and see it as a natural, impersonal phenomenon that you don't need to be attached to, non-attachment. And of course, the open attention practice really lends itself to daily life. Because as we're moving through our life and doing different things, in one moment, reaching the arm to turn on the light is going to be the predominant experience. Or while you're reaching to turn on the light, worrying about what you just said three minutes ago, that might be, you know, the worrying might be the predominant experience. And then in the next moment, just walking down the hallway may be predominant. And then you might hear a loud sound, and that hearing will be predominant. So in each moment, there can be a moment of mindfulness that recognizes this is just something being known. This can be accepted. The heart is uh, can, can be interested in this. and can re relate to it with non-attachment, non-identification. It's just something being known. It's just this. Can this be okay? So that's what you can work on uh, at home. And we'll, we'll come back to this one more week. But you can just use this acronym through your daily life and in your formal set. And just get clear, like, you know, there's not it's not really right or wrong. If you work with an anchor, it generally supports more tranquility in your meditation practice. If you work with an open attention style of practice, it generally, generally supports more wisdom. There's a shadow to using an anchor, which is you can get attached to the anchor and sort of hold it as a life raft. Like, I'm with, I'm mindful of my breath, and I'm afraid about any other phenomena that might get my attention, because I might get caught up in it. So that's the shadow of using an anchor. The shadow of using open attention is, you can be distracted for long periods of time and not realize you're distracted because you don't have an anchor. The, tr the nice thing about having an anchor is when you're thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow, you very clearly know you're not doing your meditation practice because that's not your anchor. So it just sort of stands out more that you're just distracted when you have an anchor. So there are disadvantages and advantages to both. And generally, it's nice to know what you're doing. Don't change each, each set. But everybody wants skill with both. So if you always do open attention practice, then for periods of time, make your mind take up an anchor and stick with it. Because you'll learn things about your mind that you won't learn if you only do this one. So you may make this your predominant way of practicing. But from time to time, for like a retreat or for a month or something like that, do the other type. So you, you're learning... Um, and it will help show up the shadow with the style that you prefer and do more often. But I want to leave it here so we have lots of time to check in. This is really, this month is really our time for us to share with each other 
what, how we're practicing in a very practical way. And it's just so useful for people to hear from others how they're practicing. Because it helps them understand, oh, am I doing that? So it's really useful. I encourage people to say, well, this is what I do. When I sit, this is what I do. This is what happens. This seems to be really good, or this seems to be really challenging for me. And, of course, any questions you have about the topic tonight. So what comes to mind? Yeah, say your name, please. Uh, Steve. Um, hey, Steve. I, I usually meditate for the night time before asking questions. If I'm just meditating and I'm like, 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 I'm
you know, this interior castle we build where one thought leads to another and it gets so enmeshed. And, but one moment of mindfulness and the whole thing disappears. And you might not even remember in the next moment what you were thinking about. What was I just thinking about? Don't, and you want to say, oh, that's a thought too. Because you'll go back, you'll, you'll create something just as elaborate. It may be completely different, but it would be kind of like when you wake up from a really involved dream, you kind of want to go back to it. And the same thing when you pop, when you're lost in thought and you pop it with a moment of mindfulness and it just falls apart like a house of cards, you can sort of be grieving the loss of all of that complexity. Life is so simple and then you kind of miss. Even though it was a constricted state, you miss it. You know, so you want to be really aware what the mind does next, because you might just recreate something that's like where you just were. So if there's any sort of longing or sort of anxiety about the simplicity of the moment, you want to recognize, well, that's just something being known. Anxiety's being known. Well, can this be okay? Well, is there? Yeah. I mean, there, there are different categories of thoughts which may or may, may or may not be relevant in terms of the practice. The key is to see, see it for what it is. It's just something being known. And if it helps to label it thought, as opposed, I mean, memory as opposed to judging, as opposed to analyzing, as opposed to hoping, then be more specific. Yeah, but you do need to connect with, oh, this is being known. And the emphasis is on is being known. This, the content, is less important than is something being known. That's what's really relevant in terms of the practice. This is just something being known. So that's why, in terms of labeling it, you can even use the word this. It's just this, whether it's physical sensations. And the idea is the mind's actually connecting with this is being known. Here, the mind is knowing this. Yeah. Um, my name is Richard, and uh, it's not so much my question is not so much about the sitting practices, uh, how it translates into the everydayness of life. Um, so this this issue about the or the the idea of detaching oneself from the content, uh, it, so it may be easier to do in the in the forty five minute sit, but then when you come back to, you know, to the colleagues or to those meetings that you're talking about where you're wrapped up in an argument. And I just want to ask, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's easier to detach oneself from those arguments that we are invested in when it's something that's very apparent. It's like, you know, it's about greed or uh, just power. But when you are invested, say, in, in certain kinds of moral things, like, okay, you know, this is about justice versus injustice, and you know, I'm invested in the content of it because I want to fight this fight. You know, then, then how do you, you know, how do you do that work responsibly and yet, you know, uh, you know, be practicing mm-hmm. those those principles that you're talking about? I think that's that's sort of the, the everyday struggle that, that I I find very difficult. Yeah, it's a really essential question. And goes right to the heart of practice. And what I realized, I think what practitioners since the beginning have realized is that we can put down the attachment without losing the confidence. 
I just, uh, some of you know Craig Vollmer, one of the teachers here. He sent, he told me about this YouTube, uh, audio of, uh, someone giving a talk at some 12 step conference or meeting or something. Sandy Beach, I think his name is, is his name in case you want to listen to it. It's just like three minutes of uh, a talk he gave. And it's just very funny. He's, uh, he uses the example of, uh, you know, being in the ocean, holding a rock and drowning, you know, and how the 12 step program that really saved his life, you know, he, he likes it to a bunch of people on the shore or on the boat yelling out, you know, drop the rock. <laughs> so you sit, you know, you just imagine someone holding a big rock, drowning, you know, and a lot of loving, compassionate people who know what they're talking about, screaming, drop the rock. And, and you're thinking, it's my rock. <laughs> you know? And then, you know, eventually you get so exhausted, you drop the rock. You know? But it's not because you wanted to drop the rock, because every time someone told you to drop the rock, the strong feelings, but it's my rock, with the emphasis on my, my rock, this is me. And so when we're in a meeting, when we are really charged, it feels, the tension of the charge feels like my rock. And it doesn't matter, friends, wise friends tell us, you can drop the rock. We don't believe it until we accidentally drop it and start to float, and it feels so much better. And then it it can, if we're lucky, dawn on the mind, oh, I can put it down. Now, initially, like in business meetings or difficult interactions with our loved ones, you know, it may be that initially it's after the conversation has ended and we're walking out to the car, we sit, we shut the car door, and then we realize in that moment, it's over, I can put down the rock, I can let go of the rock. And it doesn't mean that the issue's over or resolved in any way. It may not be resolved at all. You know, you could hear a news article when you go home tonight, and it can get all that fire going around, you know, whatever your opinion is and whatever you think that other person's opinion is and how wrong they are and how right you are. But then there you are lying in bed, you know, and you could put down this rock. It doesn't mean you're giving in to the forces of ignorance that are destroying the world, you know and oppressing people. It just means right now, you don't need to be holding that rock. So there are really bad things in the world, and there are really beautiful things worthy of, you know, getting, in a sense, in your life. But we don't have to stay tight about it. We can keep putting it down. Now, the more we realize we can put it down, the more we realize we can put it down in every moment. Now, initially, you might need little tricks. So instead of just putting down the tension at the end of the business meeting, you might reach for your coffee cup, and you just let the mind absorb into the reaching and the lifting and the sipping and the tasting and the swallowing. And you're so fully in that experience that you realize the dropping of the rock for a few seconds. And then in the next moment, you pick the rock back up. But now it's a little different. When a human being picks up a rock it has just put down, it's not as neurotic. Because now, even though I may be really attached to this is my rock, there is something that remains in my mind that I know this isn't what it appears to be. This is not as personal. This tension, this constriction, this feeling of being right isn't as personal as it's appearing to be. 
It's almost like, you know, that line from Shakespeare that we're all actors upon a stage. It's that perception that, yeah, there's a drama unfolding here, but this drama is nature. It's not really about me or anybody, any self. It's just a play of nature, of natural forces, natural habits. The habit of fear, the habit of self-righteousness, the habit of this, the habit of that, all playing together in the soup. And it's appropriate for us, like you're suggesting, you know, to really give ourselves. The practice is not about retreating from all the messiness in life. It's about learning how to be in the middle of the mess and keep putting down the rock over and over again. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, say your name. My name is Tim. Sort of it's the Yeah. I mean, generally, boredom is a flavor of aversion. And generally, it arises because we're not paying attention. And of course, it's a feedback loop. We're not paying attention because it's boring, right? But when we're not paying, like this is how it is now, but if we're bored, then we're not going to pay attention to this. Well, when we're not paying attention, it means we're disconnecting. And when we disconnect from the way that it is, it's boring. You know, literally, it's unpleasant, it's unsatisfying, because we're not connecting. We think that satisfaction comes from having an interesting experience, but actually, satisfaction comes from the quality of attention, not from the experience itself. It's the quality of attention that matters in life. So you could have any life. You could be a woman, you could be rich, you could be poor. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be different, and that there aren't some lives that are more pleasant than other lives. Clearly, that's the case. But ultimately, what's most important is the quality of attention that the, that being has, as opposed to the particular conditions of their lives. And we know this is true, because there are people with really so-called difficult circumstances but because of the quality of their attention, their life is really wonderful. And there are people who have really fortunate circumstances. They're beautiful, they've got money, they're healthy, etc. But they're really tortured by life. You know, their quality of their attention, quality of the mind, is such that they're tortured, even though they're fortunate in so many of these superficial ways. So boredom is a disconnecting. And so life starts to feel flat, unimportant, not because it's unimportant, but because the heart-mind is disconnected. It doesn't care enough, doesn't value the brushing of the teeth, the vacuuming of the carpet, the walking from the car to the store. It's like this moment is really about getting to the next moment. Well, of course, that attitude is very unsatisfying. You know, the attitude that this doesn't matter, 
it doesn't feel good. Because it's a virgin. It's like, oh, I'm looking forward to that moment. Wanting that moment. So we're, so one thing you might experiment with is not just opening to the boredom. That's just the first move to recognize, oh, this is boredom. Boredom is being known. But then to have the wherewithal to uh, ask, well, what is being, what else is being known here? What else is the mind known? And to see, well, can the mind be interested in that? So really inviting in, like asking, not demanding, but asking, what can the mind be interested in? What is the mind willing to connect with? Willing to, in a sense, let in, uh, experience, make contact, touch the heart, touch the mind. And to have a sense that this is my life now. This is the only moment. The future hasn't come yet and the past is completely gone. This is the, right, this moment is the entirety of our life. Does the future exist anywhere? Literally, does the future exist anywhere? I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but does it exist now? No. Does the past exist now? No. So this is literally it. And if we practice being disconnected now, we'll get really good at being disconnected later when the next moment comes. So we have to really challenge that habit because it, it becomes a you know pervasive habit. Just like you could have the opposite pervasive habit that, you know, this is so important. But that can also be a, a kind of attachment. Just like this isn't important. Both are fixed ideas. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. But if they don't even need to be subtler, you just have to, the, the thing is, this idea that this doesn't matter is like a crust, and you have to break through that fixed notion, that kind of arrogant notion that this moment isn't relevant, it's not important. Compared to what I imagine, this is nothing. You have to break through that crust into the actual moment. You have to find something you can do that your mind is willing to pay attention to, willing to be interested in, whatever it might be. So like in meditation practice, if it's coming up a lot in meditation practice, you might experiment with a particular reflection that the mind finds interesting, like to open to your experience, but through the particular lens of looking at impermanence, how things are coming and going, how that movement of coming and going never ceases. And that might bring up the interest. Or you could reflect on the fact as you breathe in or breathe out or feel the heart beating that someday this will stop. And I don't know when. And then all of a sudden makes it interesting whether the next breath is going to come in or go out. Because we know that one day it won't. I, some of you know my mother died in April and a bunch of us, my family, were there. And it was so interesting to be with her in those last moments. It's just, you know how if you've done this, you know it's like we become riveted to the movement, the rib cage and the breath, and especially those last moments. There's some gaps and you don't know it's gonna come back and then it comes back, it's there and then it and then at one point of course it doesn't continue. And it's just such an interesting moment to realize that whatever this is you know, at least in terms of this body, it will end, you know, and it will be a transition of some kind, which we don't really know. And that makes us interested. 
And we have to leave it here. Let's just take a few breaths together. It's okay to let go of the words. And maybe touching some gratitude for this practice. And all the women, all the men who have practiced in the past, in all the different ways, sharing their insights, their good wishes with the next generation. And we can see our own practice in that light, that not only are we practicing for our own well-being, but we're practicing in a way that supports the well-being, the happiness, the liberation of all beings, without exception. May this be so. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thanks for Kim and others who did some cleaning today. And Kevin is our program host tonight. He has a couple announcements for us all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.